out as we hear the scripture passage for this morning's sermon. So if you have a Bible, please open up to Luke in chapter 5, beginning in verse 27 to verse 39. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find our passage on page 836. So that's Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Give ear for what we are about to hear is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece of new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a good slip of the tongue. That was not a baptismal certificate. That was a dedication certificate. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance. And before we just spend time on the Word of God, let me pray for us. Spirit of the living God, come and fill this place. May we hear your Word. May your Spirit open our eyes so that we can see you, Jesus and know you more richly and worship you. Whatever you are calling me and all of us to together as a community right now, may we hear and may we be faithful and may we be obedient so that your name may be proclaimed throughout the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one thing I love to do in my free time is I love puzzles. I love word puzzles, word riddles. Uh, I can waste a lot of my time playing Sudoku. Uh, if, 
I love escape rooms, deductive logic puzzles. And I think the reason, I even do this in Sunday school with the kids. I always show them a puzzle at the start of the week, not always, for the older kids, because I think it gets the mind going. And one of the keys of a puzzle is you need the right attitude and you need to be asking the right type of questions. So I, so I think for the first time in history here, let's start off a sermon with a word puzzle. Now, some of you are going to get this in 10 seconds. Some of you may be sitting here mulling this over to the end of my sermon, not paying any attention. So I will tell you the answer before we begin. Just throw your hand up if you've, if you've solved this. Nice. See, Sam's got it. Nice. Just You've got to be asking yourself questions. What does this mean? Step, step pets. Is that like pets you inherit when you remarry? Is there alimony payments around these? Why is it like step, step? Pets. Um, that was a clue. Is it pets? Is pets just spelt? What's pets spelt backwards? Step. All right. So the answer would be two steps forward, one step back. So who here got that? Just put up your hand. Who would, I want to give you credit for your genius. All right. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> The right attitude and the right questions can help us make sense of a lot of things in life. And today, as we continue in our study of the book of Luke, we are going to see how the wrong questions actually take people further from Jesus. But the right attitude will help us understand more and more of who he is. So thank you for joining us today. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're still exploring Christianity and trying to figure this all out, we just say welcome and thank you. One of the things we love doing here is we love studying God's Word because we believe it is powerful, it transforms us, and it is relevant, ever so relevant today as it always has been. So if you have your phones or you brought your Bibles with you, please open up to what Pastor Andrew just read. It's Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to actually 39. We're going to go through 13 verses. I've just broken it into two sections. And if you're new, feel free to grab one of those blue Bibles in the rows in front of you and open up to page... 836. What we're going to do is just read a verse or two, unpack it, and keep working our way through the passage that way. So in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5, it reads, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. We've been studying Luke. If you've been paying careful attention, this should trigger your mind back, I think, three weeks ago when we were studying Luke chapters 1 through 11. And when Jesus calls the disciples and they're working on their fishing boat and he tells them to cast their nets at the worst time of day in the worst spot to cast your nets. And all of a sudden they pull up a big haul of fish. Peter, or it's called Simon, throws himself in front of Jesus and, and just declares like his amazement at what Jesus did. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, in verse 10, you will fish for people. And then he says, so they pulled up their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. It's the exact same structure as this call to Levi, who we also know is Matthew from the other Gospels. Levi got up from the, in the middle of his workday, left everything, and followed him. I would love to see the scene, you know. The Levi is just sitting there collecting taxes, probably of everyone coming in and out of the city, kind of like a tariff tax as people come in through the Roman king, through Herod's kingdom. And then all of a sudden he's like, all right, guys, tell the boss I quit. I'm out of here. 
And he kind of just goes and follows Jesus on his way. A really interesting thing to note as we study Luke is, who is Jesus calling? Actually, a better question to ask is, who is responding to the call of Jesus? At the beginning of chapter 5, it's fishermen. In this section, it's a tax collector. And unfortunately, fishermen and tax collectors of, the, of that time were not well-renowned or respected positions. A fisherman was kind of like, just that's what your family did, that's the trade that you followed. It wasn't exactly the best-smelling job. Where a tax collector, hey, they made a lot of money, but what they did is they stole from their own people. On the rung of worse, there's like, you know, your friends, your enemies, and your tax collectors. The reason is, Israel lived under Roman occupation. Tax collectors were probably Jewish, but they were sent by the Romans to collect taxes from their own people. Levi, Matthew, he was supposed to be a friend of his people, but he was taking their money and exploiting them. He was supposed to be a friend, but he was much worse than that. I was trying to think, like, what are jobs people just don't like? I'm t I thought of, like, the door-to-door -door salesperson, the telemarketer, but then I thought of the worst possible job that gets no respect is the uh, parking ticket enforcement officer. Like, when was the last time you heard say someone say, thank you, officer, for doing your job and giving me that ticket? You've actually probably even said that yourself, but it was in a sarcastic tone. Yet, here is Jesus, and the people who are responding to him are kind of like the people on the margins of society, the people you wouldn't expect to follow. Just even the idea of Levi and this tax collector, let me go into a bit more. I found this great quote in a commentary. Rob robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together. Isn't that nice? A tax collector was barred from the synagogue, like a ban from church. A tax, the Roman writer tells us that one time he saw a monument to an honest tax collector. Apparently, this honesty in this profession was so rare that the one time they found a man or woman who was honest in their profession, they built a monument to that person. Not exactly the most respected and appreciated job in society. Jesus is calling people who maybe aren't the most appreciated or the most respected. But what Jesus cares for is their attitude and one who is willing to follow him. What I love next is I love the response of Levi. In verse 29 it reads, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. His response to the call of Jesus, he throws a party. He throws a party for Jesus to meet all his friends. Now, I was thinking about this. If one of those, the English royals gave me a call and said, no, know, Prince Andrew, uh, Harry, one of those guys called me and said, hey, Tim, we'd love to throw a party at your house. Invite a few people. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Uh, if I took it seriously and didn't think it was a hoax, the first thing I'd probably do is uh, I take a broom and reach under my couch and sweep all the kids' toys that are hiding underneath there. I, I, one thing we never seem to do in our house is Windex the windows because it seems futile with kids pressing their faces on there. I clean up the house. I get well-dressed, and I would try to invite, you know, the, the classiest people I know or the people who at least not make a fool of themselves in front of the English royals. I know some of you are looking at me like, that's probably my spouse or my mom. 
What I love about Levi's response to Jesus, he's not ashamed of Jesus, and he's not worried that Jesus is going to judge any of his friends. He invites him to just come hang out with his buddies who are kind of considered the lowly of the low throughout society. But he felt so welcomed by Jesus that he was so willing to invite Jesus into his world, a world that so many others in that day wouldn't have dared gone into or entered into. Then we come to verse 30 and our grumpy characters. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So an interesting question as I was reading through something, how do the even the Pharisees and the ta- so tax so Pharisees and the religious leaders end up in all the way up here in Galilee. Paul talked last week in a sermon that it was like a three to four day journey by donkey. It doesn't seem like a very convenient mode of transportation. So why would they have come all the way just to hear Jesus? If we go back to verse 15, we see of Luke chapter five, and the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sickness. And in verse 17 it reads, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea, Judea and Jerusalem. You see, the fame of Jesus was growing so much that people were hearing about him in faraway towns and villages and willing to come all the way just to hear what this man had to say whether they agreed or disagreed with him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like the religious elites of that day. The people who knew the Old Testament, who understood the cultural and religious practices of the day. They knew that good religious people in those days don't eat and drink with the unclean and vile members of society, especially those who were banned from the synagogue, from the Jewish place of worship, because they didn't also want to be polluted or banned themselves. If you want to understand even some of the basics of these cultural practices of holiness and so forth, you can go back two weeks into our sermon series, listen online to Pastor Andrew he, as he explained to us the story of the leopard and took us back into Numbers and Leviticus to understand how a uh, holy God uh, interacts with an unholy people. It's just a great way to understand the, kind of the cultural nuances of everything going on. It's interesting. In the last week's sermon, Jesus forgives, and the Pharisees were here for this scene, forgives the sin of a person, and instead of recognizing that this is actually God standing before them, the Pharisees mutter to themselves and complain how this religious lie is something worthy of death. I think it's fair to say, you know, maybe they didn't have the best attitude or asking the right questions about who this Jesus was. Well, Jesus can roll with the punches. So he turns to them and says in verses 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus hasn't come for those who are righteous or have it all together, 
but for those who are sinners. At first glance, when you read this text, you almost think that he's saying, oh, you Pharisees, you are, you are the righteous people. Yet, that can't be the case. You know what? In a weird way, it's kind of odd, but the best thing about sick people, you know what it is? Is that they know that they're sick. See, when someone's sick, they know it's better than to, you know, show up at the office sick. Better, they know better than to send their sick kid to childcare with several other kids or to school with several other kids around. Yet the worst, and I'm totally guilty of this, is the being in denial of sickness stage. It's like, <coughs> I'm not sick, I'm just getting over this, I'm fine. I'm not contagious. You know, they show up to work, everyone gets sick, productivity drops, they send their kids to childcare, everyone has runny noses for the next week, it's just a rough time. Or they show up at our family Christmas party and they infect everyone and we all end up spending the holidays throwing up. That's maybe, I'm still processing something from two Christmases ago. The key to sickness is to accept reality. And the problem with these religious leaders is that when they heard Jesus' words, they would have simply said, I'm not sick. I'm healthy. I'm righteous. It's those tax collectors who are the sick people. They would have completely missed Jesus' call for their life and his call to repent and turn to him. Yet here's the reality. I'll be the first to say this. I'm sick. This pastoral staff team is sick. The problem here is sin, and it's something that consumes all of humankind. See, Jesus, Romans even teaches us that no one is righteous, not even one. So clearly, Jesus' ministry extends to all people because none of us are without sin. We are all in desperate need of Jesus, and those who do well are, are the ones who recognize their sickness, their brokenness, and their desperate need for him. I found this great quote as I was studying from Craddock, who puts it eloquently. Jesus is clear as to whom his ministry is extended but his listeners have to decide whether they are well or whether they are sick. Let me repeat that again. Jesus is clear as to whom his ministry is extended to, but his listeners, the Pharisees and Levi, have to decide whether they are sick or whether they are well. That leaves us with a question for today. Are we like Levi and recognize our need for him? Or we are, are we like the Pharisees who are living under the delusion of good health when everything inside is perishing? Levi knew his desperate need for Jesus, so he followed him. The Pharisees shifted the blame and, avoid, and thought others were worse than them, so they were okay. And sadly, as we continue reading, the Pharisees still don't see their need for Jesus or how their attitude and their questions were actually pulling them further away from Jesus. In this final section here, verses 33 to 38, let me read verse 33. 
They, the Pharisees, said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray and do, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Okay. On the surface, this looks like a great question. They're, they know that, they know like good Jews, um, fasting, prayer, along with alms or giving are kind of the three big pillars of Judaism. And they know, hey, if you're a good religious person, you should be at least fasting and praying. So what's going on with your people? Why aren't your people doing that? But look below the surface of the question. What does it say? John's disciples fast and pray. Jesus, we the Pharisees fast and pray. How come your people don't fast and pray? Or let me put it a different way. Jesus, John was a good religious person. He taught his people to fast and pray. Jesus, we're good religious people. We teach our people to fast and pray. What type of teacher are you not to teach your people to fast and pray? It's funny. You can see this passive-aggressive behavior of the Pharisees. Two weeks ago, when they disagree with Jesus, they mutter to themselves. And then the first passage today about the healthy and the sick, when they have a question, they don't ask Jesus, they ask his disciples. So this is good. This is progress. They're finally directly communicating with Jesus. So Jesus delightfully turns to them and gives them this response, which would have totally confused them. Verse 34. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And verse 35, but a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. I, I, I think if it was me, I would have been like, what? What does that mean? What does that have to do anything with the question that I just asked? Yet there are three amazing truths in this passage that I love deeply. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days, they will fast. Any good hearer, especially these Pharisees who would have been scholars in the Old Testament, would have heard him refer to himself as the bridegroom. And their minds would have gone back to Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder, God, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. In Isaiah the bridegroom is God. And the bride is the people of God. So Jesus suddenly throws this bomb out there. I am the bridegroom. You can't fast right now. You can't fast right now when God is in with you in the flesh. And that's one of the most amazing things. He tells them, he's, he's becoming very clear with them, but they can't see it because of their attitudes and their questions aren't really seeking to understand. Now, if they had been paying attention, listen to this. Two weeks ago, when there was the paralyzed man, Jesus heals the man's disease. What does he say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Who can do that? Only God alone. Sorry, that was in last week's passage. Two weeks ago would have been the passage of the leper. And the question there to see is, Jesus was able to interact, touch those who were unclean, but not become unclean himself. That's something that doesn't happen to humans. Then we have the story of him forgiving sins, something attributed only to God. Now he calls himself the bridegroom, who is God himself, who loves and serves his people. And next week's passage, he refers to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And Sabbath is part of creation, so he's almost saying, I am part of 
the creation. I was here when creation happened. I am the Lord of creation. If the Pharisees had ears to hear, they would have heard very clearly Jesus calling himself God. Yet they missed that completely. But when you hear that, why on earth would you be fast when Jesus is sitting right there in the flesh? And the example of a wedding is great. I don't know the last time for you, but I've never done this. Maybe you have. Maybe you've gone to a wedding, you know, wearing your worst clothes, weeping and crying, and refusing to eat and partake in the celebration because you were fasting. I guess, I guess it could happen. Uh, and Jesus is like, Pharisees, don't you get this? I am here with my people right now. This is a time for celebration. That's why fasting in the church turned to celebration after the death of Jesus. And if you read like early church documents like the Didache, the people of God changed the day and changed the focus to celebrating and praising the risen Lord who had died for their sins. Now fasting is so much more robust than that, but that's a sermon into itself. So I'll leave that for a different time in history. Yet Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and says, now is not the time for fasting, but there will come a day. And he foreshadows his death where you will fast. And there, you, there will be a day that comes forth where what? You will weep because I have, I have died on the cross. Yet there will come a day for mourning, yet that mourning will be followed with the greatest day in history when Christ rose from the dead, which is what we celebrate next Sunday. the Pharisees completely missed the words of Jesus, of who he was referring himself, who he was telling them who he was, and what his call was for on, upon the world. Yet, you know, Jesus is going to follow this statement in verse 34 and 5 with a par two parables, actually, in verses 36 to 39. And as we read this, just realize this is two analogies continuing on the wedding theme. And he's making it clear, the old and the new can't work together. So in verse 36, no one tears, he told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Analogy number one. Number two, and no one pours new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Say, let's go, let's go to the first analogy here, talking about how the old and the new can't be mixed. Say you have two t-shirts you bought brand new. You throw one in the closet and the other one you wear every week. After several years, it probably gets to the point, as my wife will say, that shirt is like falling apart. It's like stretched out. I can see through it. You need to probably throw that out. But I love it too much, so it shifts to the pajama drawer so where it can last a few more years without being uh, seen in public. If that shirt started to tear... I went to that closet and took my old shirt and cut a big hole 
in it, removed removed the patch and stuck it on the new shirt, the colors would be different. Like the thickness of the fabric would be different. And I would have this really weird looking patch on my shirt. My old shirt still wouldn't look good. It would be ruined. And my new shirt would have a giant hole in it. Jesus is saying here, don't do this because you'll destroy the old as well as the new. Now, for all you wine lovers out here, let's go to the second analogy. I think Bible commentaries are really helpful in helping us understand the historical situation of um, wine bottles in the ancient Near East. So, bottles in Palestine were made of skin. When new wine was put into them, it fermented, and they gave off gas, so they expand. If the bottle was new, it had a certain amount of elasticity or flexibility to it, and the skin and it gave with the pressure. But if it was old, the skin was hard and dry, and when you put wine in it and, it, and the fermentation process began and it would expand, the bottle would crack, and the bottle would be ruined, and the wine would be wasted as well. So tragic, right? Jesus is saying, old wine stay in old wineskins. New wine stay, put new wine in new wineskins, because these two do not match. Now, I know some of you read verse 39 and were wondering, what is going on there? We'll come back to that one in a second. I also have been wondering what is going on there. Jesus uses two examples to show how the old ways of functioning don't work with the new ways. And the new, ways in, is, and the new way of functioning is Jesus himself. The Pharisees are trying to use old religious practices and traditions as a gauge of their spirituality. They want to see Jesus and his disciples fasting like they do and praying like they do. They want Jesus and his disciples to live within their religious markers of their day and not to associate with unclean, unworthy people like these tax collectors and other sinners. Basically, this is what they were trying to do. They were basically trying to mold Jesus into their own image. And their, and their ways of doing religion. They just failed to let Jesus be Jesus. They were trying to dictate the terms on which Jesus spoke to them. Yet here in front of them was one who could touch lepers and still be clean. It was one who could heal the sick and declare that their sins were forgiven. It was he is the one who is the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, and ultimately the only hope for the entire world. The Pharisees failed to realize who they were talking to. This is God incarnate, God in human flesh, standing before them, and they were using their old, petty, religious ideologies to mold him into their image. They were judging him by their ways of understanding. And Jesus is simply saying, hey, I am God. Come, follow me. The Pharisees needed to stop trying to shape God into their image and instead just, like Levi, get up, leave everything behind, and follow they failed to let Jesus be Jesus. Now, verse 39, and if you read that, it says, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. 
So on the surface, it sounds like Jesus is saying the old ways of religion or functioning are better, but that that can't be the case. It kind of runs counter to the narrative of the whole book of Luke and the Gospels themselves. I actually think this is a kind of a scathing rebuke or a challenging question for the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. The word picture of old, uh, new wine and old wineskins and how that's not compatible looks at a traditional Jew. It has looked at a traditional Jews may have. Okay, so let me try this again here. The word picture there looks at how traditional Jews may have viewed the changes Jesus was bringing. Jesus is actually using a common proverb. Those who like the old do not try the new, for their mind is already made up. The old is good. This verse expresses the viewpoint that those, of those who are content with the old because they think it's good and make no effort to try the new. It's kind of actually an ironic comment of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who fail to try this new wine of the gospel. If I could summarize this sermon, I would simply say, just let Jesus be Jesus. The Pharisees come to him and try to change him, yet to no avail, because you can't change the God of the universe. Yet those who hear the gospel, the good news of this inbreaking kingdom, like Levi, how do they respond? They dropped everything. And they said, they basically said, they got up, left everything, and followed him. I think often, and myself included, we come to Jesus, we come to the word of God, hoping to change what it says about how we spend our time how we approach relationships, how we deal with sex, how we interact with people, especially those people who are real jerks to us. And we want to change that word so it suits what we want to do ourselves. Yet that is exactly what the Pharisees did. They didn't allow Jesus to just be Jesus. They didn't allow him to dictate the terms of how things work. You think it's kind of, it's kind of funny, actually, because I do this as well. I come before God, I'm like, I disagree with this. I don't like this. Why is it like this? I want to change. <laughs> I want to change Jesus' mind. Yet here I am in front of the creator of the universe, the one who can touch lepers and still be clean, the one who can forgive sins, the one who is the bridegroom, the one who is over all creation. I think my posture is just to stand in front of him and hear his words and let him shape who I am. The beauty of Levi, the beauty of Simon Peter in this passage, is that they didn't try to fight against Jesus. They just took him at his word and they let him shape and transform them. And the question for us, simple. Are we able to follow the example of Levi who got up, left everything, and followed him? Or are we always trying to remain in control and mold Jesus into the image of who we want him to be? Because here's the thing. We might think we know what we want, 
I think I know what I want. But every time that I've submitted to what the Word of God says, it's changed me. And I realize how wrong I was. Wrong about people, wrong about relationships, just wrong about so many things. And when we, the people of God, submit to Christ and follow what he says, he transforms us. And then he uses us powerfully to be a light to the entire world. This is Palm Sunday. We celebrate the incoming, the, the week before Christ's death and resurrection where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, declaring that, essentially saying, Hosanna, <laughs> you know, here comes the king. And when we follow this king and we humbly follow his ways, we as a community filled with the Spirit, following Christ, will be such a bright shining light that the world cannot say no to the amazing and transformative message that is Jesus himself, who died on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day so we can live with him if we place our faith with him. Amen? Let me pray and then the worship team can come up. Father, we praise you, thank you, we delight in you, we 